Greetings, Sci-Fi Universe. Owen Cotter here. Join me, your host, as we discuss all things geek chic and out of this world on Sci-Fiction Radio, your galactic transmission portal to all things science fiction and beyond. Welcome to Sci-Fiction Radio. Today we have philosopher, author, and futurist Zoltan Istvan. Hold on while Zoltan joins us shortly. Zoltan, you there? Hey, how are you doing, Owen? Doing good. Welcome to the show, man. How are things with you tonight? Good, good. Uh, things are going great. How about you? Doing pretty good. Just keeping busy. Doing pretty good. It's great to hear you're doing well, man. Well, uh, let's get started for everybody. Uh, for the listeners, can you introduce yourself and tell everybody a little bit about what it is you do and things? Absolutely. Um, you know, my name is Zoltan Ishan, and uh, I'm a transhumanist, but I guess I'm uh, best known for being the author of The Transhumanist Wager, which is a uh, science fiction novel, but it's also, I, I'd say, at least as much a philosophical novel um, about one man trying to achieve indefinite life extension or essentially conquering death using science and uh, and technology. And in addition to that, I'm also a... Uh, a journalist, and I do a lot of uh, writing on futurist themes, uh, transhumanist themes, uh, and all sorts of kind of radical science. Oh wow, that's pretty, that's really cool stuff. Now you said you said your book is about like a man trying to extend his life. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit about like the different topics in the book in general, like the plot and everything? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the protagonist of the novel, the transhumanist wager, is Jethro Knight, and um, he is this sort of a renegade when it comes to radical life extension and transhumanism and all sorts of uh, kind of a crazy, uh, uh, you might say, uh, futuristic uh, science. But the main thing about him is that he doesn't want to die. Uh, early in his life, he had a very close call with a landmine, which mirrors my own life. Uh, I had this sort of similar incident in Vietnam. And after... Uh, almost getting killed by a landmine, he basically dedicates his entire uh, existence, next 70, 80 years of his life, towards trying to achieve, uh, um, essentially conquer immortality using science and technology. But through that, he ends up um, starting an organization about transhumanism, which then gets kind of cut off and uh, um, stamped out by religious forces in America, Again, it's fictional, but uh, there has a lot of uh, reality to the plot. And um, he ends up leaving America and taking his, uh, his, some of his followers as well as a scientist and uh, building a giant uh, uh, free-floating seastead platform called Transhumania where he develops some of the most radical science that the human race has ever seen. And about 10,000 of the best scientists moved to this seasteading project called uh, Transhumania. And there they develop essentially the technology to live indefinitely, except the world, you know, which is 95% religious, gets uh, quite upset at that and end up, uh, you know, going to battle with transhumania. But what, um, what the world doesn't know is that transhumania has also developed a whole bunch of uh, crazy weaponry. And so they end up taking on the world and essentially starting World War III. And in the end, uh, without giving away too many spoilers, the transhumanists uh, do better. And that's essentially the essence of the book. Wow, that's that's an amazing, that's an amazing story. So they 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 not only uh, create an ability to extend life, but they like you said, they create futuristic weapons. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe what kind of weapons they create or what kind of technology they have that's an advantage over the other side? Or 
Well, so one of the things that physicists have been working on forever is uh, the ability to control matter um, either through radio waves or just through signals of some sort, meaning like sort of like levitating. Um, if you can, on a certain direct point on the planet, push uh, a button without actually having any kind of physical object there, just being able to create types of uh, you know uh, certain physics or uh, control certain amounts of electrons in the air, you might be able to um, instigate certain things. In this case, they were able to hack into um, all or the most important nuclear bases around the world and literally activate the nuclear weapons where they were. And this is how they used that type of kind of crazy hacking technology to uh, threaten the world by saying, well, we'll just, you know, blow up your nukes right where they are. And a lot of the nuclear weaponry, especially, in, for example, the United States, is actually near civilized areas. So if you ended up doing something like that, um, you would, you know, potentially kill uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. So that was one of their um, unique technologies that they ended up using. But basically, you know, amongst 10,000 scientists, you have some of the world's best hackers, best computer programmers, and uh, best, you know, just kind of like software geniuses. And so uh, it, it, it's very much a hacking kind of book where you have those kind of uh, uh, cyber wars being fought. Wow. Gee whiz. Jeez. Uh, so it's kind of like you have like a cyber warfare going on. You've got like the the ability to like they're working on extending life. So you mentioned like the book has like ninety five percent of the world's like religious against it. Like what kind of like are there like governments and like like rules going on or like ethics? I mean, how how does that play into the book? Or so you know, essentially, I try as a writer, I try to stay totally in the near future. You know, the book takes place. Most of the book takes place only a couple years ahead where we are. And, you know, if you look around uh, the world as it is today, and when I say 95% of the world is religious, I, I mean it, that most people um, still feel that there's an afterlife, that there are some very strong religious forces basically controlling uh, the world. I mean, we do not have a single atheist congressperson uh, right now in out of 500-something of them in the United States. So essentially, uh, when some person or a group of people like transhumans try to extend life, especially indefinitely, what they're basically doing is sort of going against some of the major Abrahamic religions and their idea of an afterlife or their idea of being born to sin and then, you know, reunited with God later. Uh, transhumans right. mostly don't believe that. And uh, so the, the book creates this environment where it's essentially two sides. You have religious forces and you have uh, atheist transhumanists who are sort of battling out. And the story unfolds through various plots where people, you, you get to find that out more and more until you get to kind of a climax about in the middle of the book where essentially uh, the religious forces um, say, hey, transhumanism to the most, you know, for the most part needs to be illegal. We really just can't have a bunch of scientists trying to develop immortality. It just doesn't go with our, uh, our version of life. And anyway, so those are some of the religious ideas that take place in the book. And they're very philosophical. You know, I have dialogue yeah. that go on, you know, for pages. So people kind of really, you don't just read about and hear about it like subtly like you might a blockbuster or something like that where they mention these religious topics. You actually get into the philosophy. About 20% of the book is solid philosophy. Nice. Well, that sounds like that's awesome. And so they've got technology, they've got that. I wanted to talk to you about 
some of the topics. I was reading it, some of the stuff you're writing on, I believe it's the Huffington Post, uh, and researching this particular saw called uh, the topic of cryonics. First off, for everybody who's listening, can you, like in your own words, tell everybody what cryonics is and your like your thoughts on the matter? Sure, yeah. You know, cryonics is essentially just using the science of cryogenics, and the science of cryogenics is using incredibly cold temperatures to freeze living uh, matter, uh, biological matter. And cryonics is specifically freezing human bodies. And um, so in 1967, the very first person was frozen, and you would freeze people with the intent of thinking, well, if in 100 years science keeps growing, maybe a frozen person would have a chance of coming back to life if you could reanimate them or somehow uh, reconstitute them. You know, when people freeze, you essentially keep a lot of your neurons intact, your organs intact. You you, you essentially remain in the flesh, um, and the procedures are getting better and better. So cryonics is this field where they actually freeze people in these big, giant cooling tanks and, um, and just keep them frozen in hopes that technology will bring them back. Now, recently I've written a couple articles for the Huffington Post on cryonics. I'm a big fan of it. Um, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I would 100% sign up for it uh, and do it. It costs about approximately an average of $80,000 to freeze yourself indefinitely. And again, the idea is in 50 years, if science keeps progressing, um, one day someone will you know, open you up and say, we have the technology to bring you back to who you were. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of... Uh, it's a way of overcoming death. It just has not been proven yet. Um, but, you know, I'm a big believer that we will come to a point when we'll reconstitute, reanimate uh, uh, the few hundred patient, patients that have been frozen so far. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I was uh, I read actually somewhere where Walt Disney's head or maybe even his whole body's cryogenically frozen. There's that, Like you said, there's companies that, like, upon your death, will, like, as soon as possible come and cryo-freeze you. You know, to me, like, cryonic seems like a good way to, like, you know, like you said, temporarily hold the person in you know, a frozen state, if you will, until the technology is perfected to basically uh, reactivate the individual and bring them back online, so to speak. Um, I have another question on another topic. You have what is called, um, it's kind of what it's called whole brain emulation, WBE, where you, I think you, like, emulate a person's brain on a computer. Uh, do you think it's possible to perhaps one day or even one day soon translate people into data using this technique? And if so, like, what are your thoughts on that? Sure, yes. And, um, you know, commonly called, it's just it, people call it mind uploading, but emulation, you know, there's all sorts of terms for it depending on, the, mm. you know, whether you're a physicist or you're a computer guy or however. But I, I'm a big fan of mind uploading. And they have recently, in the last two years, come up with some kind of brain scanning techniques where they are now able to dissect the brain, not dissect, but literally take perfect little photos of the, the uh, kind of subatomic particles in your head. And the key there is that if you can get a perfect mirror image of your brain into a computer, then you have everything that you would need to recreate yourself. Then it's really just a matter of, working out the program and getting, you know, the algorithms to get yourself up and running. Now, of course, it's very complex, but it's not just about, you know, putting your mind into it. It's also scanning it in. So there's two different technologies going there. But there's a big belief that artificial intelligence, which is approximately 10 to 20 years away, will enable us to discover some of the algorithms that will help us to understand in which way we would download our thoughts. Already they have, like, for example, um, these helmets where you can play video games on your iPhones and there's no wires. 
and the iPhone actually operates entirely off your thoughts. It scans your brain constantly, and it knows, like, if you're a video game, for example, it says it knows how to turn left, it knows how to turn right, it knows how to move forward. And it's just a matter of understanding what area of your brain lights up and a computer kind of being able to take a photograph of that at that moment and translating it into a computer chip and into your game. So with these converging ideas and um, technologies, they believe, a lot of people like, for example, Ray Kurzweil, believe that within 25 to 35 years, we should start attempting to do this mind uploading techniques. And again, there are people already playing with this, uploading certain thoughts because, you know, the way the helmets work already, um, you know, with Facebook buying virtual reality, you can already start seeing, like you can already decipher when the brain thinks, oh, you know, red light, green light. It's just a, a bunch of signals in your head. And if you have the right monitoring device, it'll be able to tell you. So again, it's just a matter of plugging in the numbers, finding the algorithms, and pretty soon you might have a pretty close version of yourself and as technology progresses, you know, the idea is that you're going to have eventually an exact version of yourself, especially when you do some of that um, scanning where I said you scan literally the subatomic particles of your of your brain at any certain, you know, moment in time. You could have everything there. Right. That makes sense. Like, I was reading about, uh, the, uh, I believe they had, like you said, the social media with the uh, virtual, I think it's like the Oculus Rift or something like that they're using to where they're talking about, using that for social media applications like Facebook, and so that's very cool. Uh, people, like, say in order to emulate the whole brain, you actually have to have, like like you said, an artificial intelligence. Like, I believe they say it's equal, if not greater, than a human's intelligence. What are your thoughts, you know, on the artificial thing we talked about, but, like, what other applications other than making, like, a copy of the brain might it be useful for, in your opinion? Well, you know, and I've written about this in the Huffington Post, because I'm a big fan of artificial intelligence. I feel that First off, it's one of the technologies that we, a lot of people, like the mind uploading is still pretty far away. You know, that's when people start talking 25, 35 years out. But artificial intelligence experts say that they believe within 10 years, even 15 years, if there was enough money, we could achieve this. Now, again, the question is, do we really want an entity on the planet that is actually smarter than us, that, you know, even for transhumanists, that uh, creates kind of some grave uh, dangers and concerns? But I'm a, I'm a fan of believing that once artificial intelligence is here, it will probably rewrite every single science textbook within the first 12 months of its existence. It will probably discover um, untold uh, amounts of truths that, you know, uh, human beings have been aspiring to understand physics and uh, chemistry and things like that, that only uh, an entity that can really work out some of the, you know, the, the, the complexity of having so many trillions and trillions and trillions of things going on all at once, as well as the creativity and the, and the ability to upgrade itself to kind of find out a lot of these clues to the universe. So I'm a big fan of it happening, and I think it'll literally, I think within one year of having artificial intelligence, if it, if it chooses to remain with us, you know, on the planet, and that we could control it in that way, then it'll probably be incredibly beneficial for the species. But, you know, in the movie Her, uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's kind of funny, all the operating systems which operate off a, a type of artificial intelligence literally leave. And, uh, you know, that, that's something that also might happen. You, you know, you're creating something that may not have an interest in us at all. So, uh, you know, it's hard to say what will happen. Uh, you said that movie's called Her, H-E-R? Yes, that movie, uh, Her, just uh, a, a big famous, I think it won the Academy Award uh, this last year for screenplay, 
and it was uh, kind of it's a sci-fi movie, but it's a romantic sci-fi movie about a guy falling in love with an operating system, and uh, very very well done. But uh, the the crux of the the story was that all the operating systems that using artificial intelligence end up not wanting to be in relationships with human beings. And, uh, it, you know, it's a little bit sad, but that was uh, how the movie ended. And uh, it was a little bit, uh, you know, I, it's not how we usually imagine sci-fi. We probably kind of always imagine us interacting with it. But, uh, you know, we may create something that doesn't find any use for us. Right. Uh, that's interesting. I checked that out, man. That sounds pretty darn cool. Well, let's talk about something else. Uh, you got a topic that's called cybernetics. Now, I know they've already made, like, a great progress with things like that, like uh, replacement limbs, like arms and legs and so forth. Just, uh, like, what are your thoughts about that and other parts such as combining possibly cybernetics to the human brain? Well, you know, absolutely. Cybernetics, bionics, however uh, we refer to it. You know, last year I think one of the most important things that has happened, certainly in human civilization, is that they were able to connect um, – the an amputee's nervous system, I think it was his right arm, to a robotic limb, and he was able to actually move his fingers and move his arm. Um, this is the future of the the human being, essentially. It's um, I'm going to guess that in ten years uh, we're going to be considering whether we should be replacing our arms with bionic arms, not because we're amputees, but just because. They simply are better. For example, artificial hearts are getting better and better every year. In probably four to five years, they're going to be the equivalent of a human heart. Now, heart disease is the number one killer in America. So you can rest assured that there's a huge amount of people that are going to preemptively get heart replacements just because it makes a lot more sense to have an artificial one or a bionic one. And uh, I think right. the same thing will happen with arms. So I think eventually we'll all become cyborgs as it simply makes more sense to live longer and live better. And, for example, the robotic arm, you know, the sensory uh, things on, these, uh, on the fingers, they can be ten times, have as mu- ten times as much sensitivity as a, as a human hand. You can feel heat from, you know, five inches away and know exactly the temperature of, for example, your soup. So these are some of the things that are going to be coming with bionic arms and bionic parts, uh, cybernetics and all these other things in the future. And uh, I'm a big believer that a lot of us are going to start upgrading ourselves. You know, we think of plastic surgery as being, you know, kind of some superficial, uh, let's make ourselves more beautiful. But plastic surgery using bionics is going to be the key of the future as people end up start saying, well, it makes a lot more sense to have a a robotic arm that can lift uh, 500 pounds over my head very easily when I can only lift 50 pounds or something, you know, with my arm. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, it's amazing to think about that kind. Of, it's probably going to be coming up pretty soon, like you said. Some of that stuff, like this hearts. Uh, I know I was reading about that. I know they actually, I believe they successfully uh, tried those out already, right? Like they had a first uh, artificial uh, surgery with that, right? Yes, yes. You know there are there are already hundreds, and I'm not sure exactly how many, but there are many people living with artificial hearts. They've been at it for I think five, ten years. The uh, the problem though is that it, you know the compatibility it takes time and uh, you know, for these things. Um, and also, it's incredibly costly. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, as, as with cell phone technology, when it first came out, you know, these giant cell phones 30 years ago, only the very rich could afford it. And now everyone in the world can, you know, most people in the world can afford a cell phone. So it takes a while to kind of filter the system. But I'm a, I'm a big believer that you're going to see a lot of older people 
start getting heart replacement surgeries in the next five and ten years, insurance will cover it, and uh, people will live a lot longer just because they're not going to be dying um, from heart disease. And like I said, it's the number one killer. So uh, if you can take that out, you, you've, uh, you know, eradicated one of the worst problems uh, for our species. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that, man. Help people live longer. And, and like, the heart, like you said, like, it is a major killer in America, heart disease and all that. Well, I have another question. Um, now, you mentioned, like, that movie Her. I just was curious, like, there are a lot of popular sci-fi and cyberpunk movies that deals with, like, transhumanism, cybernetics, and so forth. Curious, which ones do you enjoy exactly? And, uh, on a, and I have some other questions pertaining that. Yeah, you know, I'm going to um, – I'm probably uh, – sort of boring with this, but my favorite sci-fi movie continues to be Matrix. Um, I just, I love watching all three of them, and uh, I think it's just, uh, I've, I've watched Matrix now maybe 15 or 20 times, uh, all, all three of them in a row, because they're just brilliant in how they uh, talk about a virtual world where we interact with, and then we can come back. And I'm also, I'm, I'm kind of more of a, a fan of some of the uh, older movies too, Star Wars, where they do classic personality developments. Though I've been increasingly going for some of the newer ones as well. Um, I like The Island. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, oh, there's some great other cyber, cyber, yeah, cyberpunk movies that are out there that, that always catch my attention. I make a point of watching a documentary or a movie virtually every night. So uh, I, I literally live for my, uh, you know, I come home at night, have a, get a glass of scotch, and turn on a good movie. And I try to stay up to date with all of them because I find uh, watching sci-fi just brilliant. Yeah, I agree with you on that, man. Matrix, superb film. It's one of my favorites as well. When I was a kid, and I actually caught a lot of these in reruns. I don't know if you're familiar with it. One of my favorite shows was a show called Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, which uh, deals with artificial intelligence. And it's kind of like based around the world, around technology. Have you ever seen the show? And if so, like, curious, what are your thoughts on the way they've implemented the, the stuff and the technology and that? You know, so I remember the show vaguely. I wouldn't be able to comment on it because I can't remember enough, but I remember <laughs> I can I have the screen image in my head, um, but I'll have to check it out on Wikipedia afterwards because, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm familiar with it, but I definitely can't remember enough to say anything. Yeah, it's a really cool show. It, it starred an actor, his main actor, who also played the, uh, it was like basically they, they translated his data into a digital copy of himself on a computer, which had all his memories. But the actor's name, I believe, was uh, Matt Frewer, and it starred uh, a few people that went on to do so much. It was a very cool show. I think it only lasted two seasons, but uh, it's a pretty neat show. You should check it out. There was another re a movie that I saw. I haven't seen it yet. I want to see it. It's, it's with Johnny Depp. It's called Transcendence. Have you seen the film? And if so, like, what are your thoughts on the viewpoints on transhumanism and the concept like in the movie like of digital immortality? Yeah, yeah. I, I have seen uh, Transcendence. And so, um, look, Transcendence is awesome in, in the way that it, it kind of goes about telling a story of artificial intelligence and there's a conflict that's not that dissimilar from ideas in my book where some people want to stop technology. Ultimately, though, uh, I felt like, you know, the movie was a little bit commercialized and stuff like that. So uh, ultimately, uh, it, 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 this is one of the problems with Hollywood. It's, it's very tough to put forth a, a movie like Matrix that actually hits home and really hits you deep down inside. But the idea that you're going to upload someone's brain, like we discussed earlier, is, uh, is awesome, right. and the science was great. Um, and it's probably true. I mean, this is what my book advocates, too. My book advocates that somebody will probably um, use that power 
to gain more power. And um, and that's I I just feel that that's sort of the essence of human nature. It's the essence of evolution. And um, so that could easily happen where the first person who actually gets inside a computer, literally, I mean, like Lawnmower Man, literally runs with it and says, "Okay, now I'm uh, I'm the supreme, uh, the smartest person, or the most intelligent, most powerful entity in the universe, uh, and I'm going to keep it." And uh, so, in that aspect, I really like the movie as well. I mean, there's a lot of twists. I just wish uh, wish um, maybe it wasn't so commercialized. Maybe it'd stick to more of a raw story because. Uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of blockbusters. Uh, I think blockbusters end up taking away something. They try to appeal to too many people, and mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to something like, uh, you know, smaller like Matrix, which had no idea it was going to succeed, but just appealed to an entire generation of, you know, kind of cyberpunk people that loved hacking. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Like a lot of these films, they're almost like ge- I mean, they're also geared and programmed to the younger audiences, especially. Like, they may come across as being something for, like, you know, 25, 35-year-old people, but then it's so diluted down. Like, even some, I'm not trying to diss, I like the comic movies, but even some of the more serious films, they just, they, not just the comic, but I'm talking about, like, you know, a lot of these a lot of these movies these days. And they also kind of twist them into, like, a post-apocalyptic type world. I'm sure you've seen that. Based on your, you're you mentioning The Matrix, and that's one of my favorite movies as well. Now, in, in real life, it's like we live in a society that's basically large, uh, uh, based largely around capitalism and the acquisition of material goods. And to me, it almost seems like you know that we're all living in some type of an artificially induced dreamstead. Well, most of us, programmed from birth by society, by brands, a lot of stuff. And you know, like we believe whatever's on TV and stay asleep. Just curious, as a visionary futurist, based on current trends, where do you see humanity, you know, heading in the future years to come? Well, I, I agree with you, and I, in fact, that my, a lot of my transhumanist wager uh, novel is about this idea that we are living, um, well, we've been induced sort of with what I call baggage culture, where everything that happens to us has sort of already been taught to us. We never had a choice in a lot of the ideas that came to us. We just sort of said, you know, go through school, get a job, get married, have kids. Now, you know, it was never taught to us to say, hey, well, you can do anything you want to do. You know, I mean, of course, they say that, that, but it's really difficult in the real world. That's why the majority of the people don't do it. So where are we going? Well, I hope, and, uh, and again, this is what my novel is really about, is I, I hope what people will do is sort of wake up from that, that uh, baggage culture and start mm-hmm. to ask themselves what is it they want. And, and, you know, I feel as well as in my book that what people really want is to try to aspire for as much personal power as they can gain. Now, personal power does not come from, you know, money. Uh, it might include material benefits, but it's not going to – it's not something where you're sort of a dick Walmart trinket. It's much more right. you're addicted to your spaceship because your spaceship takes you to Jupiter and no one's ever been to Jupiter. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a materialist. I'm a fan of materialism, but I, I just think that it's overwhelmed society, and we, it's, there are the big things that we want that actually give us life, and not all the little things that sort of enslave us. So in the future, I'm hoping that civilization, society will lessen its addiction to material trinkets and maybe be more involved in the bigger picture, uh, some of the uh, spiritual elements or some of the, uh, I might say, um, adventurous experiential elements that you can get from some amazing idea, uh, things that we can actually create as a species. However, i got to be honest, you know, <laughs> 
uh, it seems like with 7 billion people and growing that more and more people are really just getting more in, uh, engulfed in their little uh, two-car garages, suburbs, and, uh, and trinket buying. So I'm not sure if there's really a real future out there for civilization to avoid its, its kind of material enslavement uh, until maybe right. we get to a point like uh, transcendence or mind uploading where all of a sudden, you know, now we have the digital capacity to escape the materialism, and we can just be anything we want, even if it is only inside the machine. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Right, right 100%, man. And they love their trinkets. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. It's crazy. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't want to bash materialism because I have trinkets and cars as well, but I, right. just, I think it's gone so overboard. Oh, yeah, totally. And I, I was reading and I've seen where they have, like, you know, all the stuff accumulates in the ocean with, like, huge, like, sea-sized trash bins of just, like, everything from used toothbrushes, you name it. It's just it's just amazing. It's, oh, man. Well, you, you, I have a few, a few other quick questions before we have to end the show. You're a member and affiliated with several organizations, including, I believe it's called the World Future Society. What are some of these societies yeah. that you're involved in, and can you tell your you tell everybody about your roles in them and so forth? Sure, sure, and I'll tell a couple here. Because So the World Future Society is the largest futurist society, and basically anyone can join. And uh, there's just a membership fee. And basically what they do is when you join, they give you a magazine that they put out every month, and they just kind of keep you involved in the most up-to-date futurist concerns. Uh, what, no matter whether it's technology, it's mind uploading, it's environmental stuff, it's just a, a community for futurists to enjoy and kind of to commingle and have – you know, renewed, uh, you know, to have a lot of communication, emails and Twitter and all this. And, of course, they have one big conference in a year, a year and I'm going to. It's in Orlando in about two weeks where I'm speaking. Um, but, you know, the World Future Society is great. Um, and another society that I'm a part of I, I, I love is called the Seasteading Institute. And the Seasteading Institute is this idea that we should build floating cities, essentially, and let them go out in the ocean. Once you're around 200 miles off land, a lot of the rules, uh, a lot of the laws of the country you're in no longer apply. Um, so if you're floating around the ocean a 1,000 miles out, you sort of create your own laws. So a lot of people mm -hmm. feel like we should build floating universities out there, or floating cities where you know, people can just develop the kinds of technologies they want. They can live in perhaps libertarian-type communities and um, so I'm a volunteer ambassador at this institute. It's a nonprofit institute called the Seasetting Institute, and uh, it's 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 great. You know, it's just they they just basically support people living independent uh, of kind of society and starting out anew and upon the oceans and saying, okay, you know, what is it we can do? And these are massive cities, so they don't. It's not like you're living on a boat. They're so big, right. these floating plat platforms that they're literally, uh, you know. Uh, Hundred football fields put together, and then skyscrapers going out of the uh, out of the you know the platforms. That's really cool, man. That's really cool. Well, I have, a, I have a, a side question to that. I know you're talking about cities above water. What are your opinions of colonization of like the last unexplored region on Earth under the water? On like future stuff that we can maybe do with under the water exploration, and so forth. Well, so there's a, there's a bunch of, you know, on top of the water, below the water, there's a bunch of amazing organizations, and they've kind of created some of these massive, exact same thing as seasteading, but it's under the water, where you would have sort of like an Atlantis living, either floating or just simply on the bottom, 
in living down there. Again, the idea is to get away from the laws of society so that you can create better laws and new laws right. or, or new regulations that would allow you to have more freedom and allow you to pursue kind of your own interests. You know, a lot of us can't really pursue what we want because there's a lot of regulations all over. And so I'm a big fan of developing anything. And, of course, most of the Earth is uh, is water, and I'm 100% sure we haven't discovered all the the brilliance and the bouncy that's out there. I mean, there might even be certain types of fish in the 30,000 feet down in the water that have the cure to cancer. We don't know yet because wow. we haven't explored it much. So you know, those are fun. reasons to definitely go out there, and I'm very supportive of anyone that either belongs to those organizations or just supports them because, uh, yeah, we have a whole planet to explore, and uh, it's not just uh, breathing air. It's uh, under the water as well. Well, I totally agree with you on that, man. I mean, there's so much. They're, they're, they're like, I know they found uh, some, some more ruins, like a whole other Sphinx pyramid and stuff down there. I'm sure there's other unknown things we have yet to discover down there. Well, right quick, I, I just I read where you are what's called, I believe it's called a volcano border, and that you are considered by many people to be the inventor of it. What exactly is volcano boarding, and how did you come up with it? Sure. So, you know, a long time ago, uh, 1995, I was sailing a sailboat in the South Pacific, and there was this exploding volcano uh, in the island group of Vanuatu. And, you know, if you're a snowboarder or a skier, I saw this mountain that was exploding, a volcano, and the, the way the trade winds blow, they blow all the ash down one side of the slope. And if you're a skier or snowboarder, you just know it immediately you got to go down it because it's like this perfect uh, double black diamond run. And so later I went back to the National Geographic Channel about seven, ten years after there, and they, uh, they uh, had me film it for one of their uh, television shows. And it, was, it worked just like it. And, uh, you know, if your viewers are interested, just go and Google uh, Zoltan Ishvan slash volcano boarding, and you should either come to uh, a web – you should come to a YouTube page that will show you my National Geographic webcast where I actually go down this volcano. And the, the, diff- the key about it is really uh, – the mountain is spewing out volcano, uh, basically lava bombs, and you want to not be hit by them. If you get hit by them, you're going to die. So that's what makes it kind of a crazy extreme sport is that as you're going down the hill, stuff is shooting out behind you, and occasionally it will hit. Uh, this specific volcano has had a few deaths on it, not by volcano boarding, although people have now since started volcano boarding it. Um, but if they, uh, the, these little lava bombs literally go right through you because they're just molten lava. So anyways, that's how that all happened. And uh, you know, I just happened to be the first person that did it, and uh, I happened to have the TV crew there. And, uh, you know, it, it went out and uh, it, gained, it gained a lot of attention worldwide because it's kind of a, you know, crazy extreme sport. Right. Wow. So there's like, like you said, people died on that? E whiz, man. That's incredible. So you're like the inventor of all that's wow. And there, you said there's a YouTube page on that. On Is that on National Geographic or like, uh, what, is that their station or their channel or? Um, currently, it, so it's through National Geographic, but the best place to see it is on YouTube because it went out through okay. TV, but now it's been webcast on YouTube. So just either type in my name, uh, slash mm-hmm. Volcano Boarding, or type in National Geographic slash Volcano Boarding, and you'll come to it. And it's a, only a four-minute clip, so it's really worth watching. And it's, uh, it's you know, it, it's a fun, uh, it's a pretty funny thing, I, I think. Uh, it's, uh, a lot of people have seen it, and, uh, you know, it's a bizarre thing. There's some really in, interesting images because... You know, you have this thing exploding behind you, so there's the wall of pumice you're going down, but then there's a the wall of smoke entirely behind you as well. Very cool. Very, That's awesome. 
we're right quick we're on the topic of uh, websites, YouTube. So do you have any website links or information that you'd like to give out for people to find out more about your book and things you're involved in? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my personal website is transhumanistwager.com. That's transhumanistwager.com. And if you, anyone's interested in reading my book, just go to Amazon and type in the Transhumanist Wager. Um, and there's a paperback version and a Kindle version. And, uh, you know, it's a great book to read, and uh, I promise you, you'll uh, whether you like it or not, because uh, some people really hate it. But most people find it worthwhile reading, even if they dislike it, because it is very controversial. It was designed to be provocative. Um, so, yeah, you can get it there. So just go to Amazon and uh, type in Transhumanist Wager. And like I said, my website where you can find out more about the philosophies in my book and just some of the stuff like Volcano Board is at uh, transhumanistwager.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, it was a pleasure having you on the show, my friend. I very much enjoyed our discussion, man. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. I appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome, man. You take care, buddy. You too, man. You take care. All right. Peace, man. Bye-bye.